And basically you get swelling of, of cells within the body with excess fluid, sometimes get shortness of breath because the swelling can happen in and around the lungs. Um, but often it's happening uh, in, in the brain, which is why you get that sort of the headache symptoms. If that swelling is more severe, people can actually get to the stage of um, altered consciousness or loss of consciousness um, or ultimately death. Hello and welcome to the Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm your host Steph Gaskell and I'm joined by my co-host Alan McCubbin. How are you Alan? Good, um, obviously watching plenty of Olympics I'm sure like everyone else, although it makes you really unproductive. You don't get a lot of work done during this couple of weeks, which is, um, yeah, <laughs> I guess it is what it is. Um, yes. But yeah, you know, yesterday in particular, uh, I had one of my kids' birthday parties and then watching the footy um, and then Olympics and watched the high jump final last night, which is amazing, the men's one, um, where they shared the gold medal in the end. Uh, and then the 100 metres directly after that and then the two Italians that won, won the high jump, one won the 100 metres. But, um, yeah, so it was a, a big day of watching stuff last night and then... Uh, caught the end of the, the Formula One Grand Prix as well, and uh, Paul Lewis Hamilton almost collapsed on the podium afterwards. Um, yeah, he's, he's worried he's got long COVID, actually. So, oh. yeah, that was interesting as well. So there's been a lot happening. Um, yeah, I mean, we spent the last 20 minutes gas bagging before we came on air about Olympics. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's plenty to talk about at the moment. How about you? Other than Olympics, have you been doing anything else? Uh, no, yeah, same thing. Just loving watching the the games, and um, now the athletics is on. That's what I really love. Uh, so um, yeah, and then the same as you. Like we've had the studies going last week, and it's quite funny. We ha I set the laptop up. And yeah, we're all like glued to watching the Olympics um, once they're in their recovery stage. So uh, yeah, that's that's a bit of fun. Um, but otherwise, yeah, just being being nice to be out of this COVID lockdown, obviously. Mm. Um, and so going out um, and uh, just soaking up, being able to be outside, going to the gym, and um, all of that sort of fun stuff again yeah absolutely i almost forgot in all the uh, all the things that were happening yesterday to add to that the review paper uh, my sodium review paper that we talked about a few weeks ago uh in the, the episode around sweat testing was um was published yesterday as well so yeah it was all kind of happening i was getting things coming in inboxes and watching tv and kids birthday parties and yeah it was crazy but um yeah and that's now available in uh the journal autonomic neuroscience basic and clinical so yeah 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 that's really cool um and i um read it but um as always need you to explain <laughs> explain things to me because it just some of it just goes over my head so um yeah that's why we we have these sessions because it's not only for for athletes um to make it a bit easier to understand but it's also for me too well and it's topical today um there's parts of that paper that we'll, we'll touch on yeah 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 so that's awesome congrats on that that's yeah. really really cool Thanks. um all right so here on the long munch we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners cyclists and triathletes ask about in their um training session or or in their recovery when they're enjoying a coffee or tea or something uh and we try and really break down that question and um make it just easier to understand i guess and then also have a practical component on it so we typically will have a part a which will be like a researcher or a guest um, expert in that particular topic um, and then part b which will usually be an athlete or a coach um, giving a little bit more on their perspective and and practical application um, typically um, so we you can find us on all your popular platforms at the long munch and then we're on social media um facebook twitter and instagram at the long munch so please yes uh shout out any questions that that you do have 
Uh, and uh, I actually on the weekend went out to grab um, some takeaway lunch uh, and one of the guys that owns that cafe is a runner and he jumped out and actually said how much he's really enjoying the uh, the podcast so um, wasn't a wasn't something that was on the social media as such but um, I we are getting some nice feedback for that too so so that was really lovely Awesome. So I think we're up to a bit of a, a rant and I know you you had a bit of a rant um, last time, but I, I mean, you still just, you're boiling up inside and I'm quite happy to, to give this one to you just because I think you need to calm down a little bit. So what's, what's on your mind? Yeah, well, you know, we had the kid's birthday party, which, you know, with COVID restrictions, we never thought it was going to happen, and it did. So that was good. Our footy team won by 98 points yesterday, which, for those who understand AFL, that's an absolute belting. Um, well, I guess if it was if it was soccer, it would be historic, I suppose. Um, there was the Olympic stuff and everything that was going on there. So there was plenty to sort of calm me down, and that, that paper got published. So there's plenty to calm me down, Steph. But despite all of that, there's something that still is grating at me. And it relates to our topic today of hyponatremia. Now, it's this thought process that a lot of people go through. Um, and whenever I hear it, I kind of just roll my eyes and go, oh, don't get me started, please. That someone's got a bit of a headache. They're feeling a bit lightheaded, a bit dizzy, something like that. I must be dehydrated. Panic stations, let's go and guzzle as much fluid as we can to, um, to cure my dehydration. Now that's well and good, and in some cases it may be dehydration, and that's fine. You'll obviously get better. The problem is what we're going to talk about today with exercise-associated hyponatremia. They are symptoms of water intoxication, of over-consuming water, as well as dehydration. So if you have those symptoms and you just suddenly randomly start guzzling water, if you have hyponatremia, you're actually making yourself a lot worse uh, and potentially going to put yourself in a hospital bed. So uh, I guess the, the moral of that story is uh, dizziness, lightheadedness, that sort of thing, unless you know there are other reasons that you know you were dehydrated, which it could well be, but in a lot of circumstances, those symptoms alone are pretty vague and non-specific, and they're not definitively saying you are dehydrated. They could be for all sorts of different reasons, one of which is overhydration, and if you start drinking more fluid, you're only going to make yourself worse. Yeah, yep. Yep. And um, back in the day as well, that was quite common, wasn't it? Like in um, some big city marathons, you know, where this message was, you know, drink, 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 and it was perhaps over-promoted. Yep. Um, that was a, a kind of a common thing and um, hopefully that message is getting across now. And um, But, yeah, definitely still need to get that message across. Um, so, yeah, hopefully today's topic uh, will we'll help with understanding um, what exercise-associated hyponatremia is um, and how that's best um, prevented and or managed. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So you're looking a bit more chill now, so, um, so that's good. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm sure going over this, uh, question will make you feel a bit better too. So, well, hopefully uh, if people, if people take it on board and don't, uh, jump the gun on the drinking, then maybe, maybe it will. Yeah. So the, the topic we wanted to, to cover, I mean, we, we spoke about this, uh, at, like very briefly in um, when we spoke about um, sweat, didn't we? We, we spoke about, um, yeah, um, what is sweat and how do I, you know, um, what's it mean when I get the, the number of how much I'm sweating, etc. We We spoke very briefly on, on this topic, but we're going to go deeper in that today. Uh, so the topic is what is exercise-associated hypernatremia? And how do I prevent it? Uh, and how does nutrition fit in? And um, we've got no one better really than you, Alan. I mean, your PhD is, is in the area of, of, in a way, yeah, it's sodium and, and hydration topics. So we have you as our lovely guest. Um, and uh, so I th 
it's it's a really common issue, um, particularly in the the long stuff, the ultra endurance events, um, and it can still be misdiagnosed. Um, so, yeah, we're we're going to dig deeper into that topic and hopefully help athletes out in terms of what they may need to be aware of. Yep. Yep. For sure. Yeah. All right, so shall we do it? Um, yep. We're up to yep. episode, you're going to have to remind me on this. 18A. Whew, 18A. All right, let's let's do it. Now, I don't know, I don't think I really need to, to introduce you as such, do I? Or shall I give people a bit of a rundown? Oh, I've done it before in previous podcasts, yeah. Yep. All right, go back to the sodium one um, if, if you need to know a little bit more about, about Alan. Um, so we're going to start with just, uh, explaining to, to the listeners what, what actually is exercise associated hyponatremia. It sounds quite complicated. Um, and why is it something that, um, that we should be worried about as an athlete, a coach or a race director or, you know, a medical support team? Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously a a big fancy term which uh, can be a bit intimidating for people um, but also potentially a little bit confusing as well so if we just unpack that term first of all uh, we'll go to the last word firstly which is hyponatremia so uh, basically hypo means low nat means sodium and emia means blood so it's basically low blood sodium so a low concentration of sodium in the blood compared to normal uh, and then exercise associated so occurring in and around exercise so typically during or after exercise i think what does make it a little bit confusing sometimes is that um, in the scientific literature often they talk about athletes developing hyponatremia even in the pre-exercise period and kind of attribute that to exercise associated hyponatremia i would suggest it's not because they haven't actually done any exercise um, so there's a couple of examples for, uh, of american footballers for example who um, became very unwell and, and actually a couple of them have died from hyponatremia uh, in the pre-exercise period because they, as we'll get into, you know, drinking too much water is, is probably the main reason that people would get hyponatremia uh, and they were guzzling, you know, litres of water in the lead up to practice, football practice um, thinking it would help them prevent cramping um, and one, it doesn't, but two, um, it, it caused hyponatremia uh, which which ultimately led to their sad deaths. Yeah, 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 yep. And they were just thinking they're doing the right right thing, getting ready for the their training session. Mm. Yeah, yeah, okay. And um, so, what are the consequences of exercise associated hyponatremia? So, I guess if we look at the the types of symptoms, and we go from kind of the less severe to the more severe symptoms. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the first thing with, with exercise-associated hyponatremia is that a lot of the cases that are reported of hyponatremia, the athlete themselves would have never known that they had hyponatremia. In other words, there were no symptoms. Um, and that's because it was fairly mild uh, and it was only picked up because of a blood test. So, I mean, the definition of hyponatremia is, as I said before, is, you know, blood sodium concentration that's below the normal range. Um, doesn't necessarily mean that it's causing you uh, a problem or that it's giving you symptoms and so um, I guess what they call mild um, slash asymptomatic hyponatremia uh, is typically a, a blood sodium concentration of sort of 130 to 135 millimoles per litre now that won't mean much necessarily to an athlete unless you've sort of looked at this before um, but it means it's just you know a little bit below the normal sort of range for for healthy resting humans um, but but not to this point that it's causing any problem. Um, and so th those get picked up um, really when there is um, blood tests being done at a race. So like in, in studies where they're trying to look for hyponatremia, they find it even though the athlete, if there wasn't a study, they would never have known that they even had hyponatremia in the first place. And that is actually the majority of cases that are reported in studies are these asymptomatic ones that that no one would have ever known unless there happened to be a study on that day. Um, but in terms of what are the, the symptoms itself, um, as we said in the rant before, some of the symptoms can be um, sort of nausea, uh, lightheadedness, um, headache as well. Um, and so they can be kind of fairly vague and non-specific kind of symptoms. 
uh, and the reason for that we'll get into you know what exactly hyponatremia is and, and why it's causing these symptoms in a minute I'm sure but um, basically you get swelling of, of cells within the body with excess fluid um, and that leads to those kind of symptoms. Um, you can sometimes get shortness of breath because the swelling can happen in and around the lungs, um, but often it's happening uh, in, in the brain, which is why you get the sort of the headache symptoms and things like that. Um, if that swelling is more severe, then um, people can actually get to the stage of um, altered consciousness or loss of consciousness, um, or ultimately death um, if the, the swelling in the brain is too severe. Yeah. Yeah, so it can be life-threatening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what I would say, though, is that that's pretty rare. Um, so while we you know, we really get scared, a lot of people get scared about hyponatremia and really worry about it, the reality is it is incredibly rare. I think there's only, I think, 14 documented deaths from exercise-associated hyponatremia, which, you know, which is 14 too many, but uh, it's still pretty small in the scheme of things uh, in terms of how many people go out there and do sort of endurance sports over the years uh, and that's since about 19 I think the 1980-ish was the first reported one um, and I think those two American footballers I mentioned before are included in those 14 um, and they as I said actually didn't undertake any exercise so whether you really want to classify those as exercise associated hyponatremia I guess it was sort of exercise anticipated hyponatremia something like that yeah 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 okay so you covered how common um it is what type of sports is it more commonly seen in hmm. well if we, if we just go back to the the common one it does actually vary a lot so there are a whole bunch of different studies that have looked at this um and they vary from zero percent to um 50 percent in some races for the people that they've taken blood samples from and actually measured the sodium concentration. Um, that said, as I said, the vast majority of those are asymptomatic. They're very mild hyponatremia. Um, and, and had there not been a study on, no one would have ever known that they had hyponatremia, including the athlete themselves. Um, in terms of uh, sports that it's most commonly seen in, I guess the ones that it's typically associated with are more the endurance and ultra endurance sports. Um, particularly probably more so the ultra-endurance sports. Um, but it, it has been reported in a whole bunch of different sort of sport and exercise activities, um, everything from yoga to, um, to, as I said, American football in that sort of pre-exercise period, um, to hazing rituals and things in the military, um, to just military exercises themselves. Um, but obviously, you know, our focus here is around running, cycling, and triathlon, and it tends to be the longer events where you're more likely to see this. And, and there's a few reasons for that. Uh, firstly, uh, and we talked about this with Dr. Lewis James back in episode 3A um, around, you know, drinking to thirst versus planned drinking. Um, the, the longer the event, uh, the less heat is being generated per minute or per hour because you're exercising at a lower intensity. Uh, because you're generating less heat, as we discussed with uh, Professor Ollie Jay in, in episode 4A, um, you don't sweat as much. Um, so you actually lose less fluid per minute or per hour. So you're losing less fluid, um, but at the same time, because the intensity is lower, um, because the event is longer, um, you generally have more access to fluid along the race course in, in the ultra endurance events compared to say like a yeah, particularly at the elite end city marathon or something like that um, so you've got more access to the fluid uh, you have more opportunities to drink um, just because again the intensity is lower um, people are more likely to say walk or at least you know slow down through aid stations and things compared to a marathon where they want to keep the pace up um, particularly at the recreational level um, you know you, you might have hydration bladders and, and bottles that you're carrying with you in, in more of the ultra endurance events whereas in like a marathon you, you're not going to be doing that um, so yeah there's, there's more access to fluid there's more opportunities to drink the tolerance is better so you're more likely to be able to drink more um, so you, you're able to drink more but you're also losing less fluid so the potential for over drinking obviously becomes greater in that sort of, sort of scenario and then obviously the longer the event the, the more sort of accumulated time that you have for this mismatch to build up over time to become a bigger mismatch rather than in a shorter event where, yeah, there might be a mismatch, but because the event is relatively short, um, that mismatch is not going to get that big before the event finishes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and what 
sort of so what are the main environmental conditions that I guess it's more at risk of occurring um, in Hmm. So, I mean, technically hyponatremia can occur in, in any conditions. Um, it, it is more likely to happen in cooler conditions because obviously your sweat rate is going to be lower um, because you're able to you know, get rid of excessive body heat more easily. Um, so, yeah, theoretically in cooler conditions, you're more likely to see hyponatremia, but there are cases reported in, in quite hot environments in places like Kona for the Ironman World Championships and things like that. Um, there have been reported cases of hyponatremia in, in those sort of hot human environments as well, although it is theoretically less common. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and why does it actually occur during exercise? Yeah, so there's a, a few different sort of factors that, that come into play here. Um, firstly, I guess we've got um, during exercise where we're sweating. And so there's that interaction, I think, which we talked about uh, back in episode 10 between the sweat glands and the kidneys. Um, and so normally if you at rest, if you just drink a whole lot of fluid, particularly, you know, if it's not, you know, guzzling four liters in half an hour or something like that, um, you know, your kidneys just kick in and you pee, pee out the excess. Uh, it's just that normal thing. I remember when I did my undergraduate degree, there was one girl in our course who used to always come in with this massive bottle of water. And of course she was walking back and forwards, you know, interrupting the lecture every 15 minutes to go to the toilet because she just drank so much water all the time. That was a strategy, Alan, just to get out of the lecture. Who knows? Yeah, no idea. But uh, yeah, I think everyone was kind of conscious that it was happening. Um, but but that's the normal response, right? So you you know you drink a certain amount of water and it dilutes all the the, the bits and pieces in your blood, uh, including the sodium. Um, so I guess this is probably a good point to also mention um, that we call call it hyponatremia because we measure the blood sodium concentration and that's you know normal low whatever it is um, but really this is an osmolality issue um, and osmolality is around uh, all of the different bits and pieces um, that dissolve in in your bloodstream plus the you know the the other things like you know your blood cells and the proteins and things that are floating around in there so if we look at the you know take the blood cells out of it and look at the plasma, you've got all your different solutes in there. You've got your blood glucose, you've got your sodium, you've got a little bit of potassium, you've got chloride and, and other bits and pieces, um, urea and so on. And, and so those are all floating around in your bloodstream. And I guess it's, I, I tend to think of it like cordial. You know, you have the cordial and then you've got the water that you mix it with. Um, if you um, add more water into that mix, it's gonna dilute the mix and make it, um, more watery. Uh, and that's essentially what happens if we over drink pure water, is we're gonna dilute all the, the sodium, potassium chloride, etc., that's in the um, in the bloodstream. Um, and so what happens then is you get shifts of fluid, which we'll, we'll go on and explain a bit more shortly, uh, happening from the, the bloodstream into other parts of the body and particularly into our cells to try and even out the osmolality because it tries to stay in equilibrium, so in balance between the inside and the outside of cells. Um, and so if we drink a lot of water, that water that comes in or anything that comes in from food from our gut goes into the bloodstream first. Uh, and then from there, it's gonna dilute across into the, or move across to dilute the, um, the solutes inside the cells. And that's why you get the swelling of the cells when you, when you over drink. Um, so in terms of um, risk factors or, or why does it occur during exercise, uh, obviously during exercise, you would tend to think it might be less likely because we're sweating, so we're losing a lot of fluid through our sweat glands, but that also has impacts on the kidney. So the kidneys then act to conserve water. Now, normally if we drink like that girl in my class 15 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, who drinks too much, it dilutes our blood. So the osmolality and the blood sodium goes down. That triggers um, the brain and then the brain switches off antidiuretic hormone. So antidiuretic hormone's job is to conserve water by basically stopping us forming more urine in terms of the water content in our urine. So if we switch that off, we're then gonna pee out all the excess fluid, which is the normal kind of response. If we drink too much, we pee out the excess and you know, our blood stays within a good volume and a good concentration of solutes inside it uh, and everyone's happy. 
What happens during exercise though is that for a whole variety of different reasons, and I won't go into the, the details of it today, is that our kidneys um, or that um, antidiuretic hormone doesn't get um, switched off in the same way. And so our kidneys don't necessarily flush out the excess water as efficiently or at all in some cases. Um, so when that happens and we drink excess water, instead of just peeing out the excess, it builds up in the body and that's when we get that fluid overload that causes the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, so that's why, I mean, for some people, when they're exercising, um, they, they don't pee during exercise. Mm, that's right. Yep. Some people, they, they do. Um, so it, it doesn't happen to everyone. Uh, and there are a variety of reasons thought to be involved with that, stress hormones and things. Some people believe you know, genetics may play a role as well um, in terms of that antidiuretic hormone response or arginine vasopressin, which is more the, the technical term for it. Um, but yeah, there's a whole bunch of different theories as to why that might happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so what about uh, is having salty sweat a risk factor for, for getting it? Mm. Yeah, so I mean, it's kind of natural to assume that if you have low blood sodium, it's because you're losing too much sodium in your sweat and you're not replacing it. Um, which kind of makes sense at a basic level. You know, you've got less sodium in the blood because you're losing it. Um, yeah, it kind of makes logical sense. But we need to remember that low blood sodium, it's a concentration. So it's the relationship between sodium and water that's important, not the actual amount of either one of those. Um, so again, using that cordial analogy, you can add cordial and make it a stronger mix again, or you can try and remove water not that you can actually remove pure water from cordial, but if you could um, and filter out the cordial, then you could bring it, you know, make it a stronger mix as well. Uh, and vice versa, if you remove the cordial on its own, you could make it a weaker mix or you could add water and make it a weaker mix. Um, now, mathematically, just how things work in terms of both the sweat glands and the kidneys, and we talked a bit about this in, in episode 10a, uh, water has a far stronger influence than sodium in the relationship between the two. If we overdrink, um, that's going to have a far bigger impact on our blood sodium concentration than the loss of sodium from sweat. Um, the main reason of that is if you think about sweat sodium concentrations, we talked about that back in that episode, is they're always less than the blood. So we're always losing proportionally more water than we're losing sodium during exercise from sweat. So theoretically, that should make our blood sodium go up, not down. Mm, mm, yep, yep, that makes sense. Yep, okay. Um, so sorry, sorry, just coming back to that question, is salty sweat a, a risk factor? Uh, potentially it is, uh, simply because when you do drink water, um, if you are losing more sodium uh, relative to water than other people, uh, it basically means you can't get away with drinking as much pure water before you run into trouble. Uh, although the volume of water still is going to be more influential, the sodium loss has uh, a role. It's just a relatively smaller one. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Um, and so we already spoke about whether genetics is a risk factor. So, so potentially it could be. Uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's thoughts and there's a couple of studies looking at this uh, around that sort of antidiuretic hormone and whether that's sort of uh, appropriately allowing that excess fluid to be flushed out through the kidneys, through our pee. Um, and there is some thoughts that there's a genetic involvement there. I'd say it's still, um, it's kind of early days in terms of that research and it's not something that's been, as far as I'm aware, actively pursued a lot. Um, so yes, there may be a role there, but it, I'd say it's fairly minor. Um, it's basically drinking too much water is the, the single biggest risk factor. Yep. And what about metabolic water production during exercise? Does that increase risk of hyponatremia? So obviously when we're um, burning through fuels, um, you know, water can be produced as part of that process. So is that something that can increase our risk of getting hyponatremia? Hmm. Yeah, so there's a couple of things going on here potentially that we can consider. The first is, as you said, you know, water can be a byproduct of the actual biochemist, 
chemical processes that go on in the muscle to produce energy during exercise, although that's a very small component, so it's probably not going to have a, a huge role here. The other one that sometimes people talk about is uh, when we carbohydrate load, um, we store water along with the carbohydrate, the glycogen in our muscles. So for every gram of carbohydrate that we store as glycogen, we store about three grams of water. Um, and so when we exercise and we use up that glycogen, so we're burning carbohydrate during exercise, that water essentially breaks off from the glycogen as it's being used up um, or broken down into glucose to be used up. Um, and so that water is then free to move around and act like water does in the body. Um, whereas before it was kind of bound up inside the cells um, because it was attached to this glycogen. So um, yes, that there is a component to that. Um, and it's probably more about, I guess, practically how we think about um, sweat loss during ultra endurance exercise in particular, where we're going through a lot of glycogen uh, in that your weight loss doesn't necessarily reflect the change in water in the body once exercise starts getting to sort of four, six hours beyond. Um, so that ultra endurance type exercise because we have this, this water release as well that we need to account for. Um, so yeah, and we can talk a bit more about that later in terms of what that means practically, uh, but it, it does contribute. I would say in the majority of cases though, again, it's just drinking too much during exercise is the main risk factor. Um, I don't think, you know, some people might go, oh, well, I go on a low carb diet, so I don't store much glycogen, therefore I won't release much water and I'll avoid hyponatremia. Uh, I think the effect of that is gonna be very, very small in comparison. Yeah, yeah, okay. And so then if we look at how can we prevent exercise-associated hyponatremia, um, yeah, what sort of strategies or what do athletes, I guess, need to be aware of in, in terms of trying to prevent it from affecting um, them? So are there certain things they need to keep an eye on? Like how, how do they even recognise whether it, it is potentially happening to them? Mm, yep. Yeah, um, well, I mean, there's a couple of things to, to think about in this space. Uh, and I might actually just go back and say, you know, normally hyponatremia is associated with over drinking water. And so it's usually then associated with weight, body weight gain. We gain body weight because we've, or at least we haven't lost any body weight, even though we should have because we've sweated out litres of fluid and yet our body weight hasn't gone down because we've replaced every last drop of that. Um, or it's actually gone up because we've over-replaced fluid. So that's the most common cause of hyponatremia. You can technically get what's called hypovolemic hyponatremia, which is basically where you have a low blood sodium concentration despite losing weight. Um, so you're not in fluid excess. Uh, it's still kind of debated in the scientific community whether that's really a thing or not. Um, and if it is, whether it's only in certain, you know, certain people with certain medical conditions that have, you know, Ex massively excessive sodium losses like cystic fibrosis and that kind of thing. Um, so it probably doesn't apply to the vast majority of people. But also in that scenario where you have um, low sodium but not water excess, you don't get the, the swelling of the cells, which is the really dangerous part of hyponatremia. So I don't think there's any good uh, or, or any really good documented cases of that form of hyponatremia with the weight loss that has resulted in any of the really problematic outcomes associated with hyperdotrium, that's basically all fluid overload related. Um, so in terms of how to prevent it happening to you, I guess the first thing is not to overdrink during exercise, um, which is kind of easier said than done in a lot of ways. Um, and this comes back to our discussion in episode 3A about whether we should drink to thirst or drink to a plan during exercise. Um, a lot of people have advocated that we simply drink to thirst uh, because our thirst is primarily driven by our osmolality. So um, if that drops because we're getting hyponatremia, theoretically we shouldn't be thirsty and then we don't drink. We're not going to drink excessively and therefore we're not going to develop hyponatremia. Um, and in the vast majority of cases, that's probably true, that if we just drink to thirst during exercise, we won't get hyponatremia. Um, and certainly the vast majority of people who do get hyponatremia were not drinking to thirst. They were drinking to a sort of preconceived plan. Um, but that said, 
Uh, and I think this is the great irony of our guidelines around hyponatremia is that um, there's this nice neat diagram towards the last page of it that basically says that drinking to thirst is kind of the, you know, the core strategy for prevention of hyponatremia. But then you flick back to the page prior to that and there's a table of documented cases of people who got hyponatremia despite drinking to thirst. Um, so it, it kind of is a bit of a contradiction if you like. Um, so I, I think for me, I still feel more comfortable if people have actually measured their fluid losses um, and measured their drinking behavior in relation to those fluid losses. So as we said in that episode three um, with, with Lewis James, it's not necessarily about you know doing a, a, you know, a sweat rate test, working out what your sweat loss rate is and then going, that's what I'm gonna drink. Um, your sweat rate is gonna change from day to day, from hour to hour in an ultra endurance event because the weather conditions are always changing, all that kind of thing. Uh, but I guess it's giving you at least a rough ballpark figure of what your expected losses are. And then using that to give you a guide of what over drinking might look like for you. So if you know that your sweat rate in, in these, you know, whatever the conditions of your next race is are expected to be, you know, sort of, I don't know, five to 700 mils an hour, just as an example, might be a lot higher, might be a lot lower. Um, then if you find that you're drinking to thirst, but you find yourself drinking, you know, one and a half liters an hour, that might be a bit of a red flag that, hey, maybe for me, thirst is not sort of being appropriately uh, managing things here. And you might end up like one of those case studies in that paper I just mentioned. So again, I don't think it's about setting a hard and fast rule on this, um, but it's about, I guess, having an idea of, for you, is thirst a, a reliable indicator or not? Um, and then if it is, then fine, you know, drink to thirst, then that'll that'll do you, do you well. Um, so I guess that's the first thing is in terms of, you know, working out how much you're gonna drink during exercise. Uh, I guess the second thing is, you know, do you worry about, you know, sodium supplements and things like that? Uh, this is still a hotly debated area. Some people argue, no, sodium supplements are completely useless. They're, they're not gonna help you at all. Um, I'm just in that review paper that we mentioned in the intro. Um, I've had a bit of a look at this in a whole range of different scenarios using some theoretical um, sort of formulas to try and estimate the change in blood sodium de depending on different kind of inputs. Uh, and what we found in that is that sodium may have a role, but only when you're drinking more than about 80% of your sweat losses. So if you start you know, getting close to replacing every drop of sweat that you lose, then sodium does become important um, in preventing hyponatremia. It's not the magic bullet, but it will help. Um, but if you're drinking less than that, um, it's not gonna make any difference uh, in terms of protecting you from hyponatremia. So it's only when you're drinking pretty aggressively that it, that it might contribute. And does, do we know if it needs to then be a certain amount of sodium in the supplement that we should be um, consuming if that is the case? Or is that going to vary depending on um, each individual and um, what their sweat sodium concentration is? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's going to vary from, from one person to the next. Uh, and it's going to depend on how much water they're drinking. So when we did that, those sort of mathematical equations, and what we found is that the sweat sodium concentration does matter, um, but its impact is relatively small, whereas the amount of fluid that you're replacing as a percentage of your fluid losses uh, is by far the biggest driver of that sodium need to then maintain your, your blood sodium concentration. Um, so the more aggressively you drink, the more sodium you'll need. Um, but you're right, it's, it's obviously depends on then, uh, and, and that's in percentage terms. So, you know, do you need to replace 60, 70, 50% of your sodium losses, but 50% of what, 60% of what? So that'll depend on your sweat rate and your sweat sodium concentration. So that's where there may be a role for sweat testing in some individuals. Uh, and I think the interesting thing with ultra endurance exercise is, you know, the longer the event goes on, the closer to that 100% of fluid replacement you have to get to prevent a substantial dehydration occurring by the end. Um, just because of the duration of the event. Now, it's not saying you have to drink 100% of your fluid losses, you don't, uh, but you may need to hit sort of 80% to 85%, something like that, as opposed to in a marathon where you may only hit 30% because the event's only, you know, two to three hours long. Yeah, yeah. Um, and is there, because I know <clears throat> a lot of ultra endurance athletes and just potentially athletes can 
get excited about sodium supplements and and I think a large part of that can be due to marketing um, confusion about what sodium um, does to the body and for the body is there is there danger in taking too much sodium during um, a race or an event it's a good question uh, I don't think we have a, a definitive answer to that we certainly don't have any studies of you know deliberate over supplementation of sodium uh, there are a couple of case studies published in the literature I think from the Western States endurance run um, where people have actually developed hyponatremia, but when they looked back at what they were doing during the race, it looks like they took ridiculous amounts of sodium supplement, which made them extremely thirsty, and then that led them to overdrinking. Uh, and then that eventually led, like the, the overdrinking was excessive in proportion even to the supplementation, which then caused them to develop hyponatremia. Um, we, you know, as we've talked about on this podcast, we're sort of halfway through running a study around sodium replacement at the moment during five hours of exercise. We haven't seen this phenomenon. Um, we're doing targeted sodium replacement. So as far as I'm aware, no one's ever done that in a study where they've actually sweat tested people, taken those results, and then personalized the sodium that they then replace during a subsequent um, exercise session. So that's what we're doing at the moment. Uh, and what we're finding, um, we had to do some preliminary results for, for a student project uh, a couple of years ago for the first sort of half of the participants in that study. So we had a look at this and, and what we found was that when they were um, consuming, whether it was sodium or not, their blood sodium concentrations were going up because they just weren't drinking excessively. So we're replacing 100% of their sodium losses and we're not seeing this excessive drinking caused by you know, the sodium. So, you know, people know that if you eat salty chips or pretzels or something, you know, that Seinfeld line, these pretzels are making me thirsty, uh, it makes you thirsty and want to drink more. But we didn't, you know, even at replacing 100% of your theoretical sweat sodium losses, we didn't see that making people excessively thirsty to the point where they went crazy on drinking fluid. Um, it may happen, but maybe only if you take like, you know, double your losses or something mm. yeah because i guess that's the thing like what was like what would have been the highest amount of sodium that they would have been consuming um compared to what someone may do if they over um consume the the sodium tablets oh now you're making me go back and look at my data Steph. because <laughs> <laughs> i'm just thinking like if they're replacing 100 percent, but if it's not you, you know like really all that high in terms of what potentially some athletes may do um yeah i mean theoretically it shouldn't matter because the amount of sodium replacing is in proportion to their losses so if they lose a little you're replacing a little if they lose a lot you're replacing a lot so whether you're replacing a lot or a little theoretically shouldn't matter so when we looked at this data for the participants we've had so far uh, the amount of sodium that we've had to actually give them to replace 100% of their losses from the, the previous sweat test have varied from, uh, I think, as low as about 600 milligrams per hour up to as high as 2,000 for one person. Um, so it probably spans kind of the typical range that you would see. Mm, yeah, so even when you're replacing 2,000 milligrams of sodium, they don't necessarily get thirsty. No, I mean, they might get slightly thirstier, but they're not drinking excessively. Yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah, that's good to know. Just put it into context, I mm. think. Yeah. But again, bearing in mind that that 2000 is in proportion to a large sodium loss. So if someone with a low sweat sodium concentration went out and had 2000 milligrams of sodium per hour during exercise, they may well get excessively thirsty. Mm hmm. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right, and also, what about if um, if they do take an excessive amount of sodium or a high amount in terms of the dangers of that? Um, they can also potentially get symptoms, right? Like just gut upset as well. Uh, possibly. I mean, it depends on how you take your sodium, like what form you take it in, and um, over what period of time. So, yeah, I mean, if you take it in tablets or capsules or something like that, possibly. Um, particularly if those, like if you use gelatin capsules because they dissolve really quickly in water. So you basically, as soon as you swallow it, by the time it gets into your stomach, it just 
unloads its contents into your stomach. So if you dump a lot of sodium or a lot of salt into your stomach immediately, um, then yes, that can make you quite nauseous or, or even vomit. Um, most of the commercial salt capsules, like your salt stick type things, use um, cellulose capsules rather than gelatin capsules. Um, now, whether that's because they're, they're trying to make them suitable for vegans or uh, whether it's cost or whatever, I'm not 100% sure why they've chosen to go down that path. But um, certainly I found in my PhD, because we've used capsules quite a lot now to replace either sodium or placebo for a whole variety of different types of studies, what we find is that the cellulose capsules um, dissolve a lot more slowly than the, the gelatin ones. And so they release the sodium a bit more slowly into your stomach. Um, yes, if you take a heap of them at once, you can still get nauseous or even vomit, uh, but it's nowhere near as severe as with the gelatin capsules or if you were just like uncoated salt tablets or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, if, you, if you're having it in the form of like in drinks uh, or in food products and things like that, because you're consuming those over a longer period of time, it's not like you're just drinking a litre of it in five minutes or anything, um, you're generally not going to see that problem. And yep. that, I mean, that's just a normal experience of just eating salty food, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so um, in terms of uh, athletes trying to help prevent exercise-associated hyponatremia affecting them, um, the key message would be to um, make sure they don't overhydrate. Yep, exactly right. Yeah, so, I mean... I guess the simple message is drink to thirst. It's going to be the safest strategy, but we know for some people that still isn't appropriate for whatever reason, whether it's that they get dry mouth and so they feel the need to drink more. Um, we, we don't know 100% sure why that doesn't work for some people, but there's documented evidence that it doesn't work for everyone. Um, so my suggestion now for people looking at this is to um, you know, drink to thirst during a long training session that kind of simulates race conditions. Um, weigh yourself before and after. Uh, and if you're gaining weight despite drinking to thirst, then maybe that's a cause for concern and you need to be a bit more considered with you know, your drinking strategy. Um, but if you're not, you know, if you're losing weight, then, then it's probably an appropriate strategy to follow. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Uh, and then if we just have a look at then how is... Uh, exercise-associated hyponatremia treated. Uh, so if this does occur in an event um, and an athlete is, um, it's happening to them, how, how, I guess, how is it treated or how should it be treated? Mm. Um, so there's a variety of different um, things that could be done. And this is more, I guess, a medical thing than it is a nutrition thing. Um, obviously, you can't really self-diagnose hyponatremia. You need a blood test. Um, so a lot of in ultra endurance races, the medical team will have uh, like a little kit where they can analyze it on the spot um, so they can treat it immediately if necessary. So people come in with symptoms that are kind of consistent with hyponatremia. Um, some races will also weigh people in and out before and after an event um, to try and identify anyone who is gaining weight throughout the event. Um, Obviously, that's that's hard if you're a competitor because you know halfway through a 100k ultra or something like that, you don't stop to weigh yourself. You don't carry scales around with you, so it's like, well, how do you even know if it's becoming a problem halfway through an event? Um, I mean, you can look for sort of puffy hands and feet as a sign of fluid retention, but that can that can happen anyway. Um, so that's not really a conclusive of way of doing it either. Um, but coming back to the treatment. Uh, what would typically happen in the first instance is they might give you something that's really salty to drink. Um, so a small volume of fluid, because obviously fluid overload is the issue. You don't want to give them a heap of fluid, uh, but you want to give them something that's incredibly salty. So it might be made up with stock, um, something like that, um, to, to make super high concentrated solution. Um, if that doesn't work or it's not available, uh, depending on the event, they might even use uh, intravenous fluid and again, you know, fluid overload is the issue here. So it's not about getting fluid in. It's, it's about delivering as much sodium as possible to try and draw the water from inside the cells where they're being swollen back out into the bloodstream by um, basically increasing the osmolality and the sodium concentration in the blood. 
So they will give you very concentrated saline. So it's not the normal saline that you would use in a hospital for dehydration. Uh, it's, it's a really highly concentrated saline to, to draw that water back out of the cells. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, is it, can it be commonly missed or mistaken for something else? Yeah, I mean, as we said in the rant at the start of the episode, you know, because the symptoms are kind of vague and non-specific, uh, and they kind of overlap with the symptoms of dehydration, that's where I guess the real concern is. That if you know people are feeling a bit dizzy or lightheaded or a bit of a headache, they often jump to the conclusion that they're dehydrated when in fact they could be overhydrated. Um, so if you use that as your only measure of hydration status, uh, you don't ask yourself, are you thirsty, uh, all that kind of thing. Um, you know, have you gained weight as well? Um, because as we said before, the thirst uh, doesn't isn't one hundred percent reliable for everyone. Uh, and the other thing is that urine's not a reliable marker here either. So, um, you know, the problem with exercise associated hyponatremia is you, you're not peeing out the excess fluid. So you have a small volume of dark urine, and so people will go, "Oh my God, I'm dehydrated because I have a small volume of dark urine. I need to drink more." But in fact, that could be a sign that your kidneys are just retaining the fluid inappropriately uh, and leading to overhydration. So of course you drink more fluid, you're only making it worse, um, just like those sort of headache symptoms. Um, so urine, uh, particularly during and, and you know, in the, the first few hours after exercise is a really poor indicator of hydration status. Uh, it's not reliable uh, and it shouldn't be used definitively to measure this. And, and in fact, that can lead to potentially very dangerous consequences. Yeah, yeah, that's a really key one, I think, for athletes because um, a lot of us would think that, shit, we're not paying. Um, people do freak out about it. I know it's a common thing that I always get asked about. Um, and, yeah, you always get told, obviously, you know, the darker your urine as well, like the more dehydrated you are. So, um, yeah, yeah. And that's generally true when you're well-rested and you haven't been exercising and, and all those sorts of things. The problem is that during and, and sort of in those few hours post-exercise, it's, it's a very unreliable indicator. Um, and so we need to really take it with a grain of salt. Uh, and, and, you know, again, for the majority of people, it probably is correct. But the problem is for a, for a small minority of people, it's not. Um, but we, you know, until we take a blood sample and measure it, we don't know whether you're in the majority or the minority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and... We're going to. We're lucky enough to to have a sports physician that will be joining us for the, the our next week's episode, um, which is fantastic. And so we're going to talk to um, to Dr. Alice McNamara, who is often at you know these ultra endurance events helping with um, the medical support. So um, mm. yeah, we'll talk to her about obviously the experience of. Um, being able to like what do they look for um and then how can they test it because i know um i um with some reading that obviously in certain ultra endurance events um they don't have the luxury of having some of those testing kits uh mm. and so they actually i think the medical profession have to make that kind of empirical decision um so yeah so it'll be interesting to see what are some other things that they look out for yeah 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 um so super interesting um i guess then in summary um for athletes listening to this um if you were just going to give them three hot tips uh to um to guide them on how they can best prevent exercise-associated hyponatremia from affecting them in their event. Uh, what are your three hot tips? Hmm. Well, I guess the first one is that for the vast majority of people, drink to thirst is going to be the safest strategy to prevent hyponatremia. Uh, that said, it's not perfect. And so what I generally recommend now is that people do that in a long training session that simulates race conditions weigh yourself before and after and just confirm that it is an appropriate strategy so if you end up at the same weight or even above the weight that you started exercise that's not a good sign that suggests that you're probably drinking too much and then you can adjust your strategy from there um, so if you are in that category where you know you drink to thirst but you're probably drinking too much uh, have a think about sort of the cues that you have during a race 
around drinking. So maybe I'm carrying three water bottles on my bike in an Ironman and I only need to carry one or two. Um, maybe I stop at every aid station, but maybe I should think about stopping at every second aid station. Just limiting those opportunities to drink if you're one of those people who tends to overdrink during exercise. Um, you know, some people can be the other way and they tend to not drink enough and so they have to consciously think about getting more in. So you know, it can work either way. Uh, we're not saying it's, it's only in one direction here. Um, so that's probably the first thing. Um, so weight gain or at least not losing weight during um, an endurance event, particularly the ultra distance events, is, is definitely not a good sign. Um, if you think you're a really salty sweater, there may be some benefit in getting sweat tested. As I said, water intake, you know, whether it's excessive or inadequate or about right, is going to have by far the biggest impact here. But um, sodium replacement will have some impact, particularly if your fluid intake is more aggressive. Uh, if it's not, then it's probably irrelevant. You don't need to worry. Like if you're someone who tends to under drink all the time, um, then then sodium replacement's really not going to do anything here to help you one way or the other. It's only, I guess, if you tend to push it a bit more aggressively with the fluid intake that it's going to make a difference. Um, and then I guess the final thing is, you know, don't, um, you know, some of those symptoms like your headaches, like the, the dark urine in small quantities during and post-exercise, that's not a reliable indication of dehydration. Um, so if you do see that, it might make you quite anxious and think, oh, I'm dehydrated, I need to drink. But just stop for a minute, think through the situation, you know, weigh yourself if you, if you have that opportunity uh, and think about some of the other things in terms of you know, how much you've drank versus you know, how much work you've done. Um, and if you think that there's a chance that you're overhydrated and not underhydrated, don't drink the water until you get properly assessed by the medical team. Yeah, yep. yeah, great advice. Um, and if also for people that want to read your recent paper that um, has been published, uh, will are we able to put that um, a link or something there for people on social media? Yeah, unfortunately, it's not an open access paper. So unless you have a subscription through a university or something, you're not going to be able to access it. You can contact me, though, via email. Um, that's probably the easiest way. Uh, I am allowed to share preprints of it, so they won't be in the nice glossy formatted version, but it will will still be there and you can still read it so that might be the easiest way to do it yeah easy or just listen to our podcast because uh yeah you explain it really well um in here anyway hmm. yeah because that paper is not just about hyponatremia it's about a whole bunch of other stuff to do with you know sodium ins and outs during exercise and particularly the interplay between the sweat glands and the kidneys yes yeah so as we mentioned um Following up from, from this episode, we'll have Dr. Alice McNamara um, uh, chat to us. So um, she's a sports physician and does a lot of um, medical support for ultra-endurance events, so we're very lucky to have her. Uh, and so we'll be talking to her about, um, yeah, like how do you recognise exercise-associated hyponatremia and, and how is it treated um, in these events. And then we're also actually just going to extend that chat to, to Alice and talk about what are some other common, um, medical or health musculoskeletal, um, uh, injuries that they come across in these types of events and, and how are they treated? So, um, that should be a, a super interesting and, um, relevant one for the listeners. Uh, anything else we've, um, missed Alan? No, I think that's that's pretty much it. I mean, as always, if if you have a particular question that you'd like answered on the podcast, you can get in touch via social media at the Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Or if you want to leave a, a podcast rating or review on Apple Podcasts, we'd certainly appreciate that as well. Um, but yeah, no. Other than that, I think um, we've got some really interesting topics coming up. I guess as the um, the Olympics and then the Paralympics. Uh, comes and goes. Uh, I know we've said this a few times recently on the podcast. We've sort of got a, a bunch of guests lined up, but they're kind of a bit busy at the moment with Tokyo. So once the, that's out of the way, um, we'll we'll be able to get them um, on the line and, and have a chat to them and uh, answer a few of the questions. And we had a couple of listener questions in particular that have been sort of sitting there waiting for, uh, for Tokyo to be run and won um, so we can get access to the guests that we want to, to give us the best uh, answers to those questions. 
Yeah. Yeah. And then um, just really quickly, I will very kindly do it. Um, uh, a call for attention I guess um, anyone that wants to now help uh, with research in the the sodium um, hydration area um, uh, contact Alan um, uh, and then you you can be involved in some of his um, research and you know it's uh the first, I guess, type of research that is being done in this area. So, yeah, you'll be you'll be making a big contribution to our better understanding of the role that sodium plays in exercise. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So probably the easiest way to do that, again, is just at The Long Munch um, on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter, and we can get back to you through one of those channels and, um, and get some more information. So there's obviously people based in Melbourne, runners or triathletes. Excellent. And that's, um, that's all for us. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. See you then.